So here we go. <clears throat> Ephesians 6. We'll start in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand, right? So if you've grown up in church for a long time, man, you know you've heard the armor of God before. Like I, I, I have seen the armor of God taught so many different ways. I've seen men come out with bows and arrows and shoot at the crowd, right? I've seen men come out and shoot at armor on the, on the stage. And, and sometimes I'll walk out the door going, man, I, I don't know if I learned anything because I was worried about them shooting me, right? And so here's what I want to kind of walk you through, all right? I don't want to really teach you the armor of God today. I want to show you why it's important, all right? When we go into this and it says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in heaven. So what he just said there to us is what? He said, listen, he said, you've got to be ready. Because at some point, you're going to be the recipient of an enemy scheme. And when you are, you've got to realize that the person that's doing this to you is not your enemy. Like, I've got some people in my life who scorn me every time they see me. According to this scripture, they are not my enemies. Now, the enemy has gotten a hold of their mind, gotten a hold of the way they think, is, is using them, but they are not my enemy. The same way works in your life. Like, if they have flesh and blood, they are not your enemy. Because if they were, then that would mean that God's children, his sons and his daughters, right, that he has made an enemy for you. He says, I don't work that way. He said, all of my children, all of my sons and daughters, man, they were meant to live as a family, and so they can't be your enemy. And so if they have flesh and blood on them, they're not necessarily your enemy. In fact, they're not at all. It's, it's what's gotten a hold of their thought process. Does this make sense? And so your war is against what's gotten a hold of their thought process, not against them, all right? And he goes on to say, he says, when this comes for you, he says, you've got to put on the full armor of God so that when that day of evil comes, which it will come, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. So it's like some point you're going to be the recipient of this war. Like it's going to come for you. He's like, and when this moment comes, you have to do everything, which he's fixing to unpack. And he says, and, and when you do this, then you should be able to stand up. If you can't stand up, then you haven't done everything. And then he goes on to say, listen, in, in order to stand, you've got to put on the belt of truth, meaning you've got you to know what the truth is. You've got to put on the helmet of salvation, meaning the way that God works, the way that he restores. Like, does it, does it fit in that filter? It says you've got to have the sword of the Spirit, which you've got to know the word. And it says you've got to have the foundation of faith or a shield of faith, meaning that God's had to do something in your life that you know you can stand on that. And so these are the things that he's saying for us in order for us to withstand the scheme. Now, again, I don't want to teach the armor, right? It's pretty self-explanatory. 
It's like, man, you got to be in the Word more than one, one time a month, one time a week. Like today cannot be the only day that you're getting taught the Word. There is a better teacher than Chris and Matt and Casey. And when he teaches it to you, you remember it for the rest of your life. His name is Jesus. And he calls us all up to meet him on the mountain so that he can teach us these things, right? In the interim, and we gather together for stuff like this. And so I want to walk you through a scheme, all right? I want to stand with you. If you know my heart, my heart beats for the church. Like, I, I, I love the believer. Like, I, I love, when, when you're here, I cannot help but love you. And so my, my heart is to grow you up so that you can withstand these schemes. Like, the thing that fires me up is when you come in and say, hey, here, here's what was going on. Here's what God's Word said. Here's what I did, and you'll never believe what just happened. And I'll be like, man, that's what fires me up. And so I want to walk you through a scheme, right? I think it's a good one, and I didn't, I didn't just pick one out. I just said, let's just grab one out of Ephesians 6, all right? Let's just grab a scheme that gets used every day. Ephesians 6, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, all right? Slaves, obey your masters. Did you know that if you Google this, slaves in the Bible, like the first full page talks about how you cannot buy into the word. And the reason you can't believe in the word is because it talks about slaves and masters. And that any God who allows slaves and masters is not any God at all. And the fact that he doesn't address it specifically must mean that he doesn't care enough about it. And who can serve that God, right? Like if you're standing in the, in the normal world, this is what they're going to say to you. They're like, hey, did you know that slaves is in the Bible? And you'll be like, yeah, well, this word actually means indentured servant. And then they're going to challenge it. They're going to be like, you know what? Actually, this word is translated doulos. And what doulos means, it says one person who is owned by another. And not only does it say that in here, it says it 126 times. And so now you're like, So you're, you're telling me here that this says, slaves, obey your masters, do loss, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. And it says this 120-something times? You're like, yeah, that's, that's an accurate statement. And so then you may get in the car with this guy, right, or this girl, and you drive down the road, and the first thing you see is a billboard, right? Like, I just, I just snag some billboards all online, Right? A billboard with Mira Sorvino, right? Supposedly, Mira Sorvino was a professing Christian, right? Now, let me take you back. Remember, our war is not with flesh and blood. But here's what she says. Why does it not say anywhere in the Bible that slavery is wrong? It only says that you should treat your slaves well. Well, I don't care if you treat them well. How is that possible? That's immoral to own another person. Why isn't that one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not own another person. You want to sit here and tell me that fornication is worse than owning someone? Man, makes a lot of sense. And so you, you take another trip, man, you're, just, you're driving down the road, right? Let's take you to 2012. In, in the church world, in 2012, it was the year of the Bible. So guess, guess what the atheist world decided to do? They decided to make it the year of the Bible as well. And so they bought this billboard. Slaves, obey your masters, Colossians 3.22. There's multiple of these out there. And you know what? normally it says at the bottom, it's like, we can quote the Bible too. Now you begin to get an even little bit more shaky feet, right? You're like, 
this, this can't be accurate, but it is. That this is true. Okay? And so you're driving down the road just a little bit further, right? Start talking about when you were growing up. Listening to these guys that are full of comedy, and you, you pull up Chris Rock, right? Funny guy. I love all Chris Rock's PG stuff. And this is what Chris Rock says. If you're a black Christian, you have a real short memory. Right? Now where do you go? Like, how, how do you defend against this? Like, how, Does the Lord need defending at all? I mean, because we're in a bind here. Do loss. 120-something times. One person owns another. And now you got three or at least two heavyweights out there going... Bro, you're silly. Like, you're silly. And so I want to I stand with you here, all right? Let's just walk through this one step at a time. Everyone in this room reads through one of two lenses, okay? Everyone. Everyone outside of this room reads through one of two lenses, okay? First lens is called reader response, Reader response is when you go to bed at night like I do, I pull up my app, USA Today, and I read it, all right? When I read USA Today, I'm reading through the lens of reader response. When I pull up something and it says, hey, 21 Coptic Christians have been killed, I read that through reader response, meaning that I don't care about the author or what he has to say. What I care about is how those 21 Coptic Christians got killed and how that affects me and how that affects my life and how that affects my kids, and how that affects my home, and how it affects us living in the United States. Like, I read through reader response. Anytime you pick up the newspaper, you read through reader response. Like, you don't care who the author is. You just care what's happening and how it affects you. 99.9% of the things that you read are read through the lens of reader response. Okay? There's another way to read. It's called author intent. All right? Now, author intent means that you know the author. It's like you know the person who wrote it, and because you know the person who wrote it, and because you care about the person who wrote it, then you care about what that person has to say. So let me give you an example of this. Like a couple weeks ago, Matt stood up here, and he read a note that he got from his wife about how much she loved him. And he's like, you know, I read it again, and I read it again. And we know this. Like when you get a note from your wife before there was texting and Internet, you would read those things over and over again. There was one time that Rachel wrote me a seven-page letter. Seven pages. Page one, Chris, I really love you. Page two, I don't want to be with you anymore. Page three, but I really love you. Page four, we have got to break up. Page five, but I love you. Page six, I can no longer stand you. Page seven, but I really want to love you. P.S. Page eight. We're over. Seven pages for me to get to that point. And so you know what I would do? I would read the good pages. And I'm like, she loves me more here than she hates me here. Right? Like, that's how we read it. Because you, you read it through, reader, through um, author and team. Like, I cared about what she had to say to me. Even though it was seven pages, I'm like, surely you could have said all this in, in, in like six paragraphs. But you took seven pages to dump me. Which means you really love me. Right? Like, this is how it plays out. And so you know this. Like, you know this is the lens. I, I, let me give you an example of, 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 of this, okay? You ever watch Wizard of Oz? Yeah. 
I remember the first time that I saw the Wizard of Oz. I was young. I remember, I remember the, the witch when the tornado was coming and she was on her little bicycle cruising through. Like, I remember going, I just don't like that, right? I just don't, it just made me feel weird. And then at the end of it, you know, the, the monkeys were somewhat scared, but when they threw water on her and the story ended, I'm like, anticlimactic for sure. Like, He-Man, the Masters of the Universe, was more powerful to me than the Wizard of Oz. And, and then to find out that Emerald City was a joke, you're like, this is a waste of time. <laughs> then they remake The Wizard of Oz, and I've got to sit through with my kids going, this is a waste of time. <laughs> Let me just tell you, it's all a bunch of baloney. And water is the, is the sword that's going to do any business here, right? Now, what if I was to tell you that the guy that wrote The Wizard of Oz, his name is Braum, B-R-A-U-M, all right? And what if I was to tell you that the hot topic of the nation then was whether or not the United States com- continued to use gold to back the dollar? And, and what if I told you that Brahm was a staunch, was, he was staunchly against gold backing the dollar? And what if I told you that Brahm was for silver backing the dollar? Like he, he, thought, the, he thought the whole um, country needed to change. And what if I told you that there was a big debate between the East Coast and the West Coast? With one being the good witch and one being the wicked one. And what if I was to tell you that that cowardly lion that had no heart was actually the United States government? And what if I was to tell you that the tin man was actually the the factory workers? And what if I was to tell you that the scarecrow, he represented the farmers who had no brain? And what if I was to tell you that in his original script, Dorothy's shoes weren't red, they were silver? And what if I was to tell you that that golden road that he walked down, that ended you in Emerald City, that was just a joke? And it was the clicking of the silver shoes that brought everything back together. Now that I've told you that about this author, Brom, you will never watch The Wizard of Oz the same way again. I've ruined it for you. (laughs) Right? Because you know the author's intent. Prior to this meeting, when you watched The Wizard of Oz, you didn't care. Like, you just, you just cared how it affected you. Did it entertain you? But now, because you know author intent, everything shifted for you, right? Stay with me, okay? We're reading the word through author intent. Anytime that you read this thing through reader response, you've already jacked yourself up. You got to change your lens, Like, if he did everything that he said he did, then he's written in this to you because he cares about you, and he cares about me, and what he's trying to say to us is going to change us, and change us for the good. And so when we track down this path, and he says, slaves, obey your masters with respect and fear with sincerity of heart, your automatically reader response is Western slavery. Like, that's what you know. Like, you're putting it straight through the lens of reader response going, this is Western slavery, and how do you know that? Like, how do you know that? It's your automatic assumption. And this is why Mira Sorvino and Chris Rock, because they read this stuff through reader response, may it not be so 
with believers. I'm going to walk you through this word doulos. D-O-U-L-O-S. And I want you to compare it with your lens of Western slavery. Okay? Number one. Doulos. A doulos could... He's an enslaved person, but he could not be identified by his race or his ethnicity. Sound like Western slavery? Number two, education of the doulos was encouraged because it enhanced their value. And there, there are documented slaves who were more educated than their masters. This is because Rome's cultural diversity depended on educated foreign-born doulos who had been brought there. Number three, doulos functioned as work and household managers, tutors, secretaries, sea captains, and physicians. Number four, they were not the lowest socioeconomic level. Those with no jobs were. This is why it was culturally acceptable to sell yourself into indentured bondage to obtain food, clothing, and shelter. Listen, in Matthew 20, do you remember this story? We've taught this several times here. The owner of the vineyard wakes up. He tells his doulos, he says, go down to the market square and hire some people at 6 a.m. Now, here's the deal. If you lived in those times, here's what you would do. You would wake up in the morning. You would grab your tools. If you had no job, you would go down to the market square and you would wait. And you would wait for somebody to hire you. And if you didn't get hired, guess what? You didn't eat. And so the master says, doulos, go down there and hire some of these guys at 6 a.m., Go back and hire some at 9 a.m., then 12 a.m., and then 3 p.m., and give them their wages. And here's the thing. If you were not a doulos, this is who you were. And so every day depended on you getting picked for a job, kind of like the Great Depression. And so if it's me, I'm becoming a doulos way before I'm becoming a guy who just sits at the market waiting for something to happen to me, right? Does this fit our Western culture of slavery? We keep moving. Number five, the doulos could own property, including other, owning other douloses, and could accumulate wealth. Number six, because the doulos were owned across the economic barrier, there was no social class establishment, and so they gathered, gathered publicly anywhere they wanted. Again, changing your mindset. We move on. Number seven, persons would regularly sell themselves to pay debts, escape poverty, to climb socially, or to obtain special government jobs. So they would willingly say, hey, let me come work for you. Let me show you how great a worker I am. And guess what? When they proved to be faithful with little, guess what? They got proved faithful with much more. Like this is the context that Jesus taught in all the time. Like if you understand this system, it was a better welfare system than the United States has right now. It's how Jesus taught them. It's why they understood these things. And it's why we don't, because we don't understand that culture, right? Here's my favorite, number nine, or number eight. There were multiple of these, okay? This is the book you can get out of this, Dictionary of the Latter New Testament and its Developments. Here's my favorite one. A large number of domestic and urban slaves, perhaps the majority, could anticipate being set free by age 30. At any moment, the innumerable amount of ex-slaves throughout the empire were proof that slavery need not be a permanent condition. And even ancient and Greek commentators expressed astonishment that slaves freed by Roman citizens usually became Roman citizens themselves. Now bear with me. Acts 24. Paul's taken in chains. There's a lawyer named Tertullius, and guess where he brings him? To the Roman governor. Remember his name? They called him Felix in the word. 
extra transcripts from the Bible. His name was Marcus Antonios Felix. Again, proof of the Bible is who it says it is and does what it says it is. Marcus Antonios Felix was a doulos. Climbed all the way up the ladder to be a Roman governor. Reader response versus author intent. Right? We're not done yet. Okay? Let's keep pushing into this. Okay? Let's keep pushing in. So we move on past this, right? So now we've set the stage here that, that we don't even have a clue what this looks like. Like our context is not even close to what they've got here. In fact, what they've got here is something that I would probably find myself in. Like right now, I'm enslaved to the bank for my house. I, I work because I'm enslaved to the bank for my house, right? Let's go into this thing just a little bit deeper, all right, because what's going to happen is they're going to challenge you even further. And they're going to be like, well, let's use the Old Testament. Let's use the Old Testament. Here's the thing. The story's the same. It's a parallel. Didn't change much, all right? But here's where I want to lean into you. When there is something clearly stated in the Old Testament and clearly stated in the New Testament, you've got to follow it. Like, if he goes so far as to say, this is the way it is in the Old Testament, Jesus didn't change this. Like, he didn't, Jesus changed a tremendous amount of things, but he did not change this thing. As it was in the Old, it is still in the New. There are very few things like that. But I want to take you to one of them, all right? If you were to pull up your Old Testament, you're going to go to Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, talking about this, all right? Deuteronomy 24, 7 says this, that if you go steal somebody, all right? Like, if someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. Right? Old Testament law. Like, if you go steal this dude, you got to die. Picks it back up. Go into Exodus, Old Testament. Exodus 21, 16. Same thing. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, meaning that if you go somewhere and you take somebody against their will, your penalty, according to the law, is death. Abduct somebody, steal somebody, your penalty is death. Like, you want to know God's heart behind this? Walk with me in this. This thing translates over to the New Testament. I'm going to take you to Timothy. If you're familiar with Timothy, then you're familiar that these are the pastoral letters. These are the stories that Paul wrote to his discipling friend Timothy before he passed away before they killed him. So he's giving him a list and saying, here's the things you need to do. Here's the things that you need to be reminded of. Here's how the gospel is going to move when they cut my head off, right? And here's what he says. First Timothy, first chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse five. It says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Sound familiar? Now, this next part, stay with me. Author intent, not reader response. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. Why? The law was always given to the lawbreakers, so that we would know that we can never attain this, right? Like we would know that we fall short. That's why he says the law is given for the lawbreakers, not for the righteous, not for the ones who've been made clean by Jesus, but for the lawbreakers. It tracks down. Here's where it goes. 
We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. Now, if Chris Rock was sitting here, we go, Chris, man, what, what do you think? Because he just said, that slaves obey your masters, but he just said that slave traders are under the law. And without Jesus, man, their penalty is death. Slave traders. Now, may I push on you for just a second? This word is not doulos. You tracking with that? That's not this word. We're talking about an entire different word. They're going to put it up on the screen because I can't pronounce it, right? You see what it means? Man-stealer, kidnapper. You want to know what the heart of God is on slavery? Anytime someone gets taken from their place by force, against their will, it says the Lord hates that. He abhors that. And the penalty for that is death. So yeah, so when, when, the, when the West went to Africa and gathered up all the African Americans and brought them over here against their will, the Lord detests that. He abhors that. Anytime that a little child gets abducted from her home on the street, says the Lord, abhors that. Like he, he detests that. Like this is his heart. Like this is what he fights for. Like anytime that somebody gets sold into the sex trade, it says he hates it. Like it's, it's not him. He's like, I detest this. And unless they change their ways, the penalty for them is death. And here's what he says. The vengeance is his. He's like, I'll take it. Even though you don't see justice happening on the earth, he says, I will take care of this. It was the way it was in the old. It's the same way it is in the new. Anytime the slavery, as you know, it takes somebody from their place and forces them into something. The Lord says, I hate that. He goes, and I will not stand for it. Like you want to be on the side of God, you want to fight for the things that God wants, then get involved. Get involved with the sex trade. If you're not busy, get involved with it because he will fight for you and he will be on your side and the creator of the universe will stand with you. Like this is what he says. And we're not done yet. Like it goes even further. Like you may say, Chris, I don't even, I don't even understand. Like I don't have time to study this kind of stuff. But then man, can I just tell you to read it? Like, j- just read it. Like, here, here's what it goes on to say. It says, back into Ephesians 6, it says, Slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Jesus, as douloses of Jesus, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you, whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And so here's what he said. He said, listen, if you are a doulos, if, you, if the bank does own you, then man, do what's right. Like, do what's right. Like, like, consider the bank as important as you consider me. Like, pay your debt to them. Like, and even if you miss this, here's where it follows up. It says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. That's plain English. It says, slaves, treat your masters the way that Christ treated you. Like, treat your masters the way that you love Jesus. And he says, and guess what? Masters, 
love your slaves just like you would love Jesus. Now tell me, how does Western slavery exist in that? It doesn't, man. What do I want for you? Here's what I want. You can trust this. Like you can trust it. Like everything that he wrote in here, you can trust it. You can trust it. Man, there was a man named John Newton. John Newton, he, had, he was a slave trader, right? Like he, he was a slave trader. He owned the boat. One day he finds himself in this big, this big um, sea storm, right? And you know what he does? He says, Lord, if you're real, save us this boat and I will give you my life. You know what the Lord does? He calms the storm. John Newton gives his life to Jesus there on the boat. You know what happens next? As John Newton's heart begins to get transformed, he looks at what he's doing on this slave ship and says, I can no longer do this. Like something's not right. Like I'm, I'm immature in my faith, but something is not right here. Like, like if Christ did this for me and died once and for all people, then how can I continue this? And so you know what he does? He quits. He gets off the boat. He goes into seminary, or whatever you call it then. And as he grows up, man, he begins to have this weight on his shoulders of what he did. Like he's wrestling with his grace, right? Tracking with this, like we all do this. His story's not different than ours. Like we all wrestle with our past. And so you know what he does? He finds this guy in the Senate named William Wilberforce, and he decides to disciple him. And he, and he takes William Wilberforce and he shows them what Jesus talks about as far as mankind goes. And you know what happens? William Wilberforce begins to decide slavery can no longer exist. William Wilberforce is in the parliament. And through William Wilberforce, through the discipling of William Wilberforce, they would abolish slavery in the government system. And you know what's even crazier about this? Newton wrote a song. And this is how it goes. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Put that in your author intent pipe and smoke it. All right? Because you'll never hear Amazing Grace the same way again. But that's what he's saying. That's his heartbeat. It's like, praise God, I am no longer the man that I used to be. And through his discipleship of William Wibbleforce, man, they freed them. Like, this is what the Lord requires of us. This is the foundation that the Lord builds in us. And here's the beauty of it. Like, if this is wrong, then we don't have anything to stand on. But because it's true and because it's accurate, like, all of us are joined in this. Like, there is nobody better than somebody else in the kingdom. We all stand at the cross because we're all guilty of the things that we've done. And it's only because Jesus is our master that we all sit at the same table. And because he's our master, guess what? All of us in this room are brothers and sisters if we know him. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Like it doesn't change. It's the same story that runs through it time and time again. He's like, look, no man is worthy of me. But because I loved you, I came for you. And the minute that I came for you, there is no slave there is no free man. There is no Greek. There is no Jew. It's what Paul talks about in his entire time. It's like, man, we all sit here. We all enjoy the Lord. And it's why, man, it's like, it's like why, why we get along. It's like why we love one another. Like, it doesn't matter if you're an African-American. 
they're your brother in Christ if they have confessed Jesus as your Lord. It does not matter if they're Hispanic because they are your brother and sister if they confess Jesus as Lord. It doesn't matter if they attend New City Church or Westside or Restore. They are your brother in Christ because they have confessed Jesus as Lord. It is the foundation. It's the thing that puts all of us together in the same table. It's the most beautiful thing of the gospel. And every time when you put the helmet of salvation on, you got to understand this. Like it's how it moves. And if it doesn't fit in the salvation of what Jesus has done for his people, then it doesn't go. And it doesn't fit, and it's being read through reader response. Does this make sense? Author intent was designed to say, I love you, I care about you. This may be a hard teaching, but understand that it is for you. It is for your benefit, it is for your goodness. Man, it's who God is. And this is the Jesus that I serve. And this is why I continue to serve him. It's why I want to continue to get to know him more and more and more. Because he fights for the points that can't be fought for. And he uses crazy people like me and you to do it with him. Right? It's good. It's so good, man. It's so good. Man, and until he kills me, right, or until he calls me home, I think I will get more and more passionate about him. You know why? Because I'm learning to love him more and more. Because he reveals himself in his word. And so let me tell you, if you're not in his word, because you can't understand it, let me tell you, that's baloney. It is a lie from the enemy. You can understand it. If Jesus is alive and well in you, you can understand it. And they have this great thing online called commentary. Right? And so, man, here's what I'd like for us to do today. Take communion. Right? Like, know that you are connected through communion to every believer in the world. And that although this world is broken, the Lord promises that he will make it right. He will. And until that moment, guess what? what our hands and feet are for. It's being equipped, being ready with the feet of the gospel. With the armor of faith, with the sword of the spirit, like this is the things that we do. And so you're like, man, yeah. So here's my question to you. If you know Christ, this story is for you. Man, and I want to encourage you to take communion. I'm going to hurry up because I want the band to blow up, man. I want, I want us to worship the Lord for who he is, right? Christ needs to get out of the way so Jesus can be glorified in this moment. If you don't know Christ, bro, you are outside of this realm. Like, you aren't part of the family. And you know whether you know Him. It's not like like you you don't know. You know. Like, you know. Like, he's, He's called your name and you're like, and you're afraid to jump. Can I just tell you to jump? Man, be a part of it. Just jump. Call on His name. Confess his name as Lord because he is good and he wants your best for you. That's what he wants. And you may say, Chris, I'm not doing it today. Here's the deal. You walk out the door. Nobody guarantees you tomorrow. Acts 20 says this. He goes, Paul says, I preach till my conscience is clear. And so that's what we do. But man, it is the kindness of the Lord that draws you to him. And so, dude, why, why would you stop? He invites you to come play. I love him. We're going to talk about a wretch. Chief. Right? Chief. If you think you're a wretch, let me tell you, you're in great company. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. A to the men. Lord, you are good. Father, I would ask that men and women who don't know you, Lord, that you would draw them in and confess their name as Lord to you. Lord, for the believers in the room, Lord, that they may take communion today.
knowing that they are connected to you until you bring us home, until we sit at your table, where you told us that one day that you would sit at the table with us and enjoy the Lord's Supper for real. But until then, man, we got this makeshift one. It's still good. It's still good, God. So, Jesus, I praise your name. Everyone in the house said, Amen.